Just at the beginning, good morning, my name is Sam. I am our lead pastor, one of our vocational elders. And for this week's message, we're going to continue. If you're new, if, if you haven't been here in a few weeks, uh, we're going to be resuming in, in Second Peter, rather. We've wrapped up First Peter, and we're now into the second letter that Peter wrote to the same group of believers. So we're going to be in Second Peter 1, verses 5 through 7. Um, and I was originally going to do verses 5 through 7 in one week. Uh, and to give you guys a rough idea of a normal sermon prep work, so the way my mind works, the way I wind up organizing my final thoughts is a standard sermon of standard length that you guys are used to most weeks comes in right around two pages of outlines. And I was working on verses five through seven. I was not halfway through it, and I was on to page five of outlines. And I did not think... Uh, most people would be up for like an eight-hour sermon. And so you're going to see that it's two verses, but every single word is huge in this passage. And so we're going to take our time, and we're going to go through, and what we're going to do is we're just going to look at three ideas as we work our way through these verses. Uh, so it may seem like a quick reading, but it is immensely rich and a joy to dive into this. So if you would please stand out of respect for the words of God. Uh, this is 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 5. For this very, uh, it starts with this very reason. We're going to back up to verse 3, because that's the reason that leads to verse 5. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to teach us and to guide us into all truth as Jesus promised. What a privilege it is to come under your authority, to come under your teaching, to come under your word, to learn from you what you have given us to sharpen us and to refine us, to mold us, as we continue to worship you through the reading of your scripture, through meditating on it, God, remove us. We surrender ourselves to you. May this time be pleasing to you and may it be edifying for the church. May it be from you and for you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So like I said, two verses, but meaty. I mean, this is something to sink your teeth into. And so we're going to just focus this, this week, we're going to focus on that underlined phrase. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And the very first thing we see there that is an idea that should hopefully be very familiar to this body is make every effort. I consider Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me. This is God speaking to his people. And he says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Philippians 3, 12 through 16, a passage that should be very familiar to this church. 
Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. And then you also have Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Women, you should recognize this verse as you're going through Colossians. Colossians 1, 28 29. Jesus we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. So yeah, there's a call and there's a command on the believer to make every effort to seek God with all of their heart, to take personal ownership for the pursuit of the Lord and of His things. But what does Colossians remind us? What have we looked at time and time again? That if we're doing this, if we're trying to do this apart from Christ, we're wasting our time and our energy. What does Colossians say? Paul says, I toil that everyone will be mature in Christ struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works in me. What have we already looked at in this letter in 2 Peter, verse 2, in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. And we looked at how that word knowledge, it's talking about an intimate knowing. It's not superficial. It's a personal living with and knowing and conforming to. Verses 3 and 4, God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We look that we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit as believers who leads us in these things, who guides us in these things, who teaches us these things. So even in this, this idea of make every effort, I want to stress two things. First and foremost, I want to stress that it has to begin with Christ. It has to begin with Jesus, with a desire for Jesus. The burden on every believer's heart ought to be for the person of Christ and for His glory and His magnification and for our conformity to His character and His calling. Because it's easy when we hear every effort to get it twisted. And so when he says make every effort, he's talking about sanctification, not your schedule. When he says make every effort, he's not saying, believer, exhaust yourself with over-busyness. Exhaust yourself with overwork. Jam your schedule so full in pursuit of good things. Sam, my schedule is full of good things. It might be. But God's commands never negate one another. So when God, when the Holy Spirit leads Peter to write, make every effort... This is not a different God who also told Moses to write down, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. This is not a different God who said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is not a different God who led David to write Psalm 23 talking about rest. So when he says make every effort, don't get it twisted. This is not an inability or an unwillingness to rest and be at peace, and be still in the name of, well, i got to make every effort. I have to jam every second of my schedule full because that's what it means to make every effort. No, 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 no. That's scheduling. 
Peter's talking about sanctification. Because then on the flip side, it's also not coasting. It's also not kicking up our feet. Guys, I've said this time and time again, and I will keep saying it time and time again. Conversion is not the finish line. The believer getting saved, that is not when things end. That's when things begin. And far too many Christians and far too many churches are content with saying, and at times in my life, I have been guilty of this. Please hear me. I'm not up on a pedestal. I'm saved. My part's done. Now I just get to enjoy the ride. No, Sam, make every effort. Right, that's why I don't have a breather in my week. That's why I have no time to just sit and enjoy my home and my spouse and my child. No, Sam, that's overscheduling. I've also commanded you to rest. See, it's both. It's sanctification. And we see this in one beautiful verse. 1 Corinthians 10.31, one of my favorite verses. So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do for the glory of God. I asked this question of the group that meets to pray, which you're all invited to before the service, 10 o'clock. But I asked the, the, the group this morning, as I said, I was thinking about this, preparing for this message this week. You know, I said, why do we do what we do? Hands up, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad. This isn't a question, but hands up. Does anybody pray before they eat? Anybody? You pray before you eat? Why? Because uh, that's what we did growing up. That's what you do. You pray before you eat. Why? No, you pray before you eat because that's what Jesus taught us. You pray before you eat because you're acknowledging that apart from the goodness and mercy of God, we wouldn't have food or a table to put it on. And that apart from His kindness and creativity, we wouldn't have different taste buds to enjoy it. You wouldn't be able to say, oh, that's sour, that's sweet, wow, that mixes really well together, if God in His artistic, infinite creativity hadn't designed those flavors. So we pray before we eat to glorify God. This is why, right, this is the illustration. This is the point of 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. This is what Peter is talking about when he says make every effort. Everything in our life must be about Jesus. To what degree does sin affect those dead in it? When I was dead in sin, when I was dead in trespasses, to what degree was, was there, uh, let me rephrase it this way, was there any portion of my life and my physical existence not marred by sin? No. Scripture tells us that creation itself, the physical created world around us, is groaning from the effects of sin. So sin mars every single aspect of existence for those dead in it. So in a parallel vein, for those now dead to sin and alive in Christ, to what degree should sanctification define our life? Every single aspect of it. Everything about dead to sin is dead. I am raised to newness of life in Christ. So in the same vein, every single facet of my life as a new believer, as a new creation, as someone with a new heart should now be dedicated and given to and driven by sanctification. Pursuing Christ. Pursuing conformity to His character. 
pursuing an imitation of Him, pursuing a proclamation of Him. Trying to separate conformity to Christ from the call on every believer, not just on pastors, not just on elders, not just on Bible study teachers, on every believer. Every believer is called to be conformed to the image, the person of Christ. Trying to separate that would be like trying to separate oxygen from breathing. You can't do it. It's impossible. Every believer is called to conform to Christ. What does Colossians say? What does Scripture say? We do this with His energy. We do this under His leading, under His guidance. Make no mistake, it's not, I can't white-knuckle my way to just being a holier person. What's Galatians talk about? Walk in step with the Spirit, right? But I also can't pretend like I don't have a responsibility to do this. I can't pretend like I don't have a responsibility. What's it say in Hebrews 12? Set aside, lay aside, throw off the chains that so easily entangle us, run the race with perseverance. What do we look at in this series already? He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So for me to say, well, I can't do this, I don't have a role to play in this, is to equally deny Scripture. And so Peter reminds the church, hey, make every effort, take ownership of what God has assigned to you in sanctification and pursue it. Because you're getting to work with Jesus on it. Scripture calls him the founder and perfecter of our faith. One of my favorite memories as a kid, uh, we got gifted this package by some friends, but so I grew up for a lot of my childhood about an hour from New York City. Don't hold it against me, some of you will. I'm a Yankees fan. Yeah, I see some of those looks of disappointment. Come on, Bernie Williams, Chuck Knobloch, Tino Martinez, Paul O'Neill, it was awesome, right? Who? <laughs> Heroes. That is who. Heroes. We got gifted. So I'm a kid. I'm a kid growing up a Yankees fan. We got gifted this package to go to Yankee Stadium. And I'm not talking about the new Yankee Stadium. I'm talking about the original house that Ruth built Yankee Stadium. And we got to go down on the field before a Yankee game and get a clinic from the Yankee coaches. We were losing our minds. Are you kidding me? I get to learn from the same guys who are teaching Derek Jeter and Jorge Posada? I get to learn the finer points of pitching from Mariano Rivera's pitching coach? Guys, we get to learn holiness from Jesus. Come on. That's awesome. We get to work with Jesus on our sanctification. We get to be yoked to Jesus and follow in His footsteps and learn from Him. That's, that blows Yankees coaches out of the water every day of the week. This is the privilege of the believer to make every effort. This is what we have been empowered for, what we have been called to. And I love that Peter stresses this. And then he says... Supplement your faith. Note that it's not supplement your existence with faith. That faith is the pre-existing foundation. That it begins with faith. I shouldn't have clicked to this slide because now it's up there. What is faith? 
I mean, if somebody came up to you and was like, hey, you, you're a Christian, what's faith? You guys talk about faith. You got it on a necklace. You got it on a bumper sticker. What's faith? Uh, we'd probably give a pretty good definition. But when you really look at it, when you really look at Scripture and what Scripture says, I think we'd find that we've missed a key distinction of faith. And I think a lot of times when we talk about faith, we make it synonymous with belief. And faith is very closely tied to belief. Faith is very much along the same vein as belief, but there is a very key biblical distinction between belief and faith. Consider these verses. Romans 12, 2 through 3. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more, more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned." 2 Thessalonians 1.11, To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. The one commentary defined it as this, It is always a gift from God and never something that be, can be produced by people. In short, it is God's divine persuasion. The Lord continuously births faith in the yielded believer so they can know what he prefers. Faith is discerning God's will and acting on it. I'm still not seeing the difference between faith and belief. Aren't they the same? Is it possible to have a true belief without faith? Here's a fascinating question that might cause some of us to sit up and think. Is it possible for demons to have accurate theology? Yes, good. Well, really? Yeah, what is theology? Theology is a belief about God. Is it possible for demons to have this accurately? James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, the demons, they believe God is one. That is a true belief. Demons do not have faith. What do we see? Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This was like a very quick overview of this because you can geek out on this really hard and dive into some fascinating Greek root words. And I used fascinating and some of you, even more so than the Yankee fan comment, are bothered by what I just said. If you're interested in this, if you want to talk more about this, I've got pages of notes and research on the difference between faith and belief. So if you want that, let me know. We'll make it. We've got it available for you guys. We'll get it in your hands. Um, but what we see in Scripture is that faith and belief, while very closely related, while dependent, are different. There's a true belief, and then for the believers in Christ, those saved, there is the gift of faith to discern God's will and act on it. As we open Scripture, as we submit to His Word, as the Holy Spirit teaches us and guides us, this is the gift of faith. So it begins with that. It begins with a discernment of God's will and a response to it, an acting on it, a submission to it, a recognition that these are the commanding officers' orders for me. I come under them. And so Peter says it begins there. 
you start with faith. Then he says, okay, now make every effort to supplement that. And this word, this is a really cool word in the original language. It was actually used about orchestras and an orchestral conductor and an orchestral manager. And so you had these groups that would perform and for every, let's put it in modern language, it was a tour manager, all right? You got the Beatles, and then you've got their tour manager. And the Beatles don't have to worry about what hotel we're staying at, what food are we gonna eat, they just show up and perform. The tour manager, they were the ones responsible, this word can also be translated as supply, or provide, supplement, supply. The tour manager, they were the ones responsible to supply what was necessary for this performing group. The word properly literally means, like it properly means in its most formal setting, it is a lavish supply of all that is necessary to accomplish a grand objective. So this isn't, when you see this word supplement, where you see this idea of supply, this isn't meager scraps. This isn't, you know, hey, you're going out for the day, with your friends, you're gonna go shopping, you're gonna go eating, here's 10 cents. Have fun, right? No, that is not what this word means. This is lavishly supply. Where else do we see this word used? We see it used in scripture talking about what God does for us. 2 Corinthians 9.10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Galatians 3.5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Colossians 2.19, the head from whom the whole body nourished or supplied and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So this word supplement, supply, this is used to talk about how God gives the Holy Spirit. We looked at this two weeks ago. Does God give you 20% of the Holy Spirit and then you gotta ask for more later and ask for more later? No, He generously gives the Holy Spirit. God nourishes, He supplies the church with what it needs for growth. Does He do so in meager doling out of small portions, just enough to get by? No, he does so generously, lavishly, richly. This is what the believer is called to supply to their faith. Lavishly, richly, not good enough. And we're not talking about contentment versus complacency. We're talking about, well, that's fine. I don't need to grow anymore. I'm done. I'm as patient as I'll ever get. I'm as good as I'll ever get. No, it is a lavish, rich supplying that we are called to make every effort to pursue. So to set all of this up, Peter is saying, look, you got to give yourself all of yourself to this. Because this is what's necessary for the grand objective that the church has been called to. What word did Peter repeat several times in 1 Peter that we looked at? Ectenos. Anybody remember what ectenos translated to? Earnestly. Love one another earnestly. Do this earnestly. So we unpacked, okay, earnestly. What is this idea? What is ectenos? And ectenos is stretched to your full capacity because that's what's necessary to fulfill the objective. 
It's the same idea here. Make every effort to supplement your faith. Begin with knowing God's will. It is tragic in my own life as I've grown up and matured in faith. How many times I've said things, man, I, just, I wish I could just hear from God. I wish I could just hear God's will. And I'm very grateful for it. Different times in my life, I had mature brothers in Christ or guys who were mentoring me, pouring into me. I remember one time I was talking to a professor who we actually ran into last weekend at homecoming. He was my advisor. We hit it off, became good friends. And one time I was talking, I was like, man, I just, I wish I could, I wish I could just hear from God, you know? And he was like, well, what Bible passages are you reading? I was like, huh? Excuse me? He said, you want to hear from God? You mean like God's word? Yeah, it'd be great to hear God's words. Well, Bible passage, oh, I see where he's going. So it begins with faith. It begins with God's will, knowing God's will, discerning God's will. What's his overarching will? 1 Thessalonians 4.3, your sanctification. Not your schedule. Not your over-busy exhaustion. Your sanctification. So it begins with this. It begins with Christ. It's centered in Christ. It's done by Christ's energy. It's toiling for Christ's glory. But then we have a responsibility to make every effort to supplement that. To give ourselves to a pursuit of building that and of growing in that. And this is where he now starts to get into, okay, what do you add? The foundation is set. Faith is the foundation. It's set. You understand that you got to pour hard into this. So what do you start to add? The first thing he says is virtue. He says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. In virtue, it's simply visible excellence. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. It is excellence that's observable by the people around you. Randy Frizee, a Christian pastor, theologian, thought, author, he describes it this. He describes it as choosing to consistently do the right thing in our relationships with others. And more so than Randy's words, take God's words. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Virtue matters. It's easy for Christians to get caught up in their Christian bubble and to just get so inwardly focused on the church that we forget about our relationship with the outside world. So virtue matters. Yes, it matters for the church. Yes, it matters for our relationships with one another. But it also matters as we see in our relationships with the outside world. So why is virtue so important? Why does he begin here? Supplement your faith with virtue. Well, first and foremost, because this is what's pleasing to God. Read 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29, 17 specifically says, God delights in this. This is his delight when his people are this, when they are upright, when they are righteous, when there is moral excellence. So first and foremost, and honestly, full stop right there, Christian, you don't need another reason other than this is what God delights in, and this is what God commands. But God in his generosity provides an abundance of reasons why virtue matters. Because in addition to be pleasing to God, this is how we imitate Christ. 
Christ was the paragon, the epitome, the apex of excellence. So if I have been called to imitate Christ, what does Paul say in Corinthians 11? He says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Okay, if Christ is the model of visible excellence, then that, is must, that must be what I am pursuing as well. Consider Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Talked about this two weeks ago. We're not going to be without sin. It's not perfectionism. It's not eradicationism. Don't get it twisted. But we're still called to imitate this. 1 John 2.6, Whoever says he abides in Jesus ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So if Jesus walked with virtue, then we must walk with virtue. Why else does this matter? Why else is this important? Because this lends strength, it lends credibility, it's an apologetic, a defense of our testimony. This is a fake plant, right? Yes? Okay. I like this plant. I respect this plant. Well, why'd you kick it over? Well, I don't know. No, really, I like how this looks up here. Well, then why do you keep kicking it over? Do you believe me that I like how this plant looks if my behaviors don't back it up? So virtuous living, visible excellence in our living, lends credibility and lends itself as an apologetic to our testimony. Consider Scripture. Proverbs 20.11, Even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. Titus 2, 7 and 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Imagine a world where someone tried to mock and ridicule the church and someone tried to belittle the testimony of Jesus Man, those Christians are hypocrites. That message doesn't have any weight to it. Jesus doesn't actually change life. Right, imagine if someone tried to do this and everybody listening was like, no, dude, you can't say that. Christians are the single best people I know. The church has done more for our community than any organization. I want to live near Christians. I want to work with Christians. I want to hire Christians. I want my kids to be friends with Christians. I have nothing bad to say about Christians. What would that do for our testimony if our opponents were ashamed because they had nothing bad to say about us? This is virtue. This is visible excellence. And it's how we fight back against the darkness of this world. What did Jesus say to Peter in Matthew 18? On you I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Are gates offensive or defensive weapons? Defense. So if hell's defenses won't stand against the church, by default, what position does that put the church in? Attack. Guys, we're supposed to be on the attack. We're not turtles. We don't withdraw into our shell and just, I hope we can outlast. I hope we can survive. No, we're warriors. We're on the front lines fighting for territory, fighting for every inch, fighting for every lost person. We're on the attack. And virtue 
lends itself to this. Matthew 5, 15 and 16, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Romans 12, 21, if you want it as simple as Scripture makes it, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Virtue pleases God. Visible excellence is pleasing to God. Virtue is an imitation of Christ. Virtue is an apologetic for our testimony. Virtue is a weapon we wield to overcome evil. So the question for believers is simple. Am I pursuing visible excellence? Am I making every effort to be the most excellent I can be? What might that look like practically? Faith, the persuasion of God's will. Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. So if I begin with knowing God's will and applying it, and I supplement it with visible excellence, what might that look like in everyday life? What would a virtuous spouse do? If you woke up and you said, it is my goal to be the most excellent husband I can be today. I know I put in long hours. I know I worked hard. I know I'm tired. But you know what? When I get home, I am going to serve my wife and my kids because she put in a long day. She put in long hours. She's tired too. My kids need me. My kids need their attention. Sports center can wait. Tinkering in the garage can wait because I, I want to be the most excellent husband and father I can be. Well, where do we get that in Scripture? Faith, knowing God's will. He says, parents, don't exasperate your children. It says, parents, train up your child in a way they should go. Scripture says, look, dads, who among you, if your kid asked you for something, if he asked you for bread, would give him a rock? Scripture calls us to be men who fight for our family, for faith, for the church. Husbands, what would it look like if we pursued excellence as husbands? And I'm talking about the small things. I'm not talking about the grand sweeping. I mean, make grand sweeping gestures. I don't want any of the wives mad at me. Make grand sweeping gestures. Do romantic things. I've shared this example before. Fun fact about me. I moved out of my parents' house when I was 18 to go to college. We got married in 2013. So for five years, from 2018 to 2013, I did not make my bed once. I... Truthfully, I see no point in making a bed. I got married, and I discovered people other than my mom thought a made bed looks nice. You know what I do every morning now? I make the bed. Why? <laughs> Thank you. I make the bed. Why? Because my wife likes it. Sweetheart, when you go away for women's retreats and stuff, I don't make the bed. <laughs> Because I don't care about a made bed. But when my wife is in the house, my wife cares about a made bed. Why would I not want to do that for her? <laughs> Wives, what would it look like if you were a visibly excellent wife? What would it look like if you were visibly excellent parents where the other parents at the soccer game are watching you and they're like, 
man, the way they interact with their kids is different. One of the single greatest tools, parents, listen up. And now that I'm a parent, man, you better believe this hits a whole lot differently. One of the single greatest tools that I had for evangelism in high school, I'm not kidding you, one of the single greatest ways that the door opened for evangelistic conversations with my friends in high school was my parents. I will never forget some of the comments friends made to me. I had a guy who wanted nothing to do with the gospel. He knew I was the Christian kid. He didn't want me to talk about it. He didn't want me to bring it up. He wanted nothing to do with what I had to say about anything till one time he came to a cookout at my house that we were having for a bunch of my friends. And the next day he was like, okay, dude, I gotta ask. Your parents like you. Why? And you like your parents. He was like, I've never once seen parents talk to a kid that way and a kid talk to his parents that way. What is so weird about your mom and dad? I had teachers say that. I had coaches say that. I had multiple people say, your parents treat you differently than my parents treat me, than the other parents treat their kids. Why? Parents, are you visibly excellent to the world observing you? Do you build your kids up? Do you encourage them? Do you fight for them? Do they know that in you they have a fan like no other who will love them no matter what, who will cheer for them no matter what, who has their back, who wants them to be holier? My dad had a saying, and I swore to him I would never use this saying, and now that we have a daughter, I know I'm going to wind up using this saying. Dad, that's not cool. Why would you do that? Why would you make me do that? And my dad would say, and I'll quote, he's going to watch this and send me a text. My dad would say, because God has called me to be your parent before he has ever called me to be your friend. And my parents' primary concern was my holiness. And they loved me and they pushed me and they cared for me. And I knew it and the world around us saw it. Parents, are you models of virtue for the school your kids go to, the neighborhood you live in? What would a virtuous employee look like? Hey, I'm running a little late. Just clock me in, okay? I know I'm not there yet, but just, just help me out. Man, I worked in two different offices with clocking systems. I have received this text many a time. Here's my code, just, just quick punch me in. If, I, if I'm late one more time, I'm gonna get in trouble. I would never steal from a job, right? Would I ever send a text like, hey, I know I'm not there, but just clock me in. Just help me out, cover for me. What would a virtuous employee look like? What would an employee look like who pursues excellence in every way? I mean, if we asked all of our bosses, hey, so-and-so, Sam is a Christian. Based on the way he works for your company, based on the way he submits to your authority, do you want to hire more Christians? Is the answer yes? Hey, Sam is your coworker. He's a Christian. Based on the way he works, based on the way he helps you out, would you want to work with more Christians? Is the answer yes? Hey, Sam is your neighbor. He's a Christian. Based on the way he lives next to you, would you want to live next to more Christians? Is the answer yes? 
make every effort to supplement our faith with virtue. This is what we've been called to. So this week, as we consider these things, let's read Galatians 6 and Hebrews 12. For prayer, apply the Acts model like we do. And then for the imitate Christ part, it's simple. Bring back the bracelets. You remember the WWJD bracelets? Huge in the 90s, early 2000s? Bring those back, man. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus look like as a coworker? What would Jesus look like as a neighbor? Imitate Jesus. Think of someone in your life who would be easy to love like Christ. My wife's a wonderful person. It is, it's fun to love her with excellence, to do things for her, to bring her flowers and stuff like that. Okay, we all have someone like that in our life. We also have people in our life who it's a little bit harder to love excellently. I've worked for that boss that disrespects you and insults you to your face. I've worked for that coworker who blows off their workload and then expects you to pick up the slack and blames you when the boss wants to know why that work wasn't done. Who in your life would it be difficult to love with excellence? Pursue excellence with them this week. Please join me in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the gift of faith. We thank you for how good you are to us. We thank you that you have given us your word, that you have given us the Holy Spirit to know your will. Like the disciples asked Jesus and Luke, give us more faith. Help us understand. And then God, may we toil, as Paul wrote, may we toil with your energy to supplement our faith with virtue. Lead your church in that this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey everyone, Pastor Sam here. Thanks for joining us for a Sunday sermon. If you're interested in more of the sermons from this series or some of our past sermon series that we've done, you can find them at discovercommunity.org under the sermon file. Uh, otherwise, you can subscribe to this channel to make sure you stay up to date on all our content. Thanks for joining us.